Well, good morning again. It is good to be here and good to be together. I'm so looking forward to this week. I love that we just sing that worship song. Who, is everyone familiar with that worship song? I'm just doing just a quick poll. Yeah, most of you. I feel like it's like the Jesus loves you, this I know, of this generation. It's just a simple reality. And we sing those songs, and I think they become familiar to us. But it's a reminder to me, isn't it interesting that the way that Christianity has spread through the generations since Jesus Christ walked on this earth, since the historical reality of Jesus Christ, our Savior, a man walking on this earth, is that we will be his witnesses. That he doesn't call us to doctrine or theology, although certainly like learning and being trained up in our faith is what we're doing even when we're here today, but he calls us to be his witnesses, which means that it's your very life that you offer to the world as an expression of who Jesus Christ really is. And because we're human beings who are changing all the time, and we have this dynamic experience of life, so if you were here last year at Mount Hermon, or the years before, or 45 years ago, like Richard, you're still changing and growing, and God's unchanging word begins to work with your changing life, and there's this interaction that happens. And I'm just, I'm just thrilled to be your guide in that conversation that God is inviting you to this week through his very alive and active word and your very dynamic and changing soul and the fact that what that is, your story, whatever you've come here today with, whatever that is, that God is interacting with you and inviting you in, even as you spend your free time and you're with your children if they're here or however you spend that time, as that's happening, that we get to be in a conversation together about what God is writing in your life right now in this season. So that's kind of what we're going to be doing here in the morning. Um, if you're worried now that I told you I'm a counselor and I'm going to look deeply into your soul, uh, I'm not. That's between you and Jesus, but I do hope that you have some of those interactions and conversations with God. And we're going to look at um, this idea that the struggle is real. So um, if you're familiar with that phrase, you know that people use that. It's kind of like a pop culture statement. And usually when someone says the struggle is real, they're mentioning something that they think shouldn't bother them that much, um, but it actually does, so they make a joke of it. So it's like, my kids are driving me crazy. The struggle is real. Well, I know I don't really want to pretend like my kids are driving me crazy, but they are, so I'm going to make a joke of it. And that's kind of how I think we live a lot of life. And I think part of that is because God has given us this wiring, unlike any other creature in this earth to look for meaning in life. We're constantly looking at our lives, and whether we know it or not, we're interpreting the meaning behind what's happening in our lives. And if you've been on this earth more than like a year, you know that there's often a lot happening in our lives that can be confusing, or things we're unsure about, or all of these drivers inside of our soul uh, toward fear, insecurity, or these other things in us and so we sing songs on Sunday morning, like you're a good, good father, but then we're also in the background, our operating system of our heart is constantly trying to interpret the story of the life that we're living, and the struggle is actually very real. All of us today brought in some sort of persistent frustration that we're dealing with, or we're encountering a season of life that we weren't expecting. Or maybe we just have like these concerns about our family or our workplace or what's gonna happen next for us, and they're just constantly going here in the background. So we sing songs that say that you're a good father and I know who I am because of you, and we do believe it. But there's also this gap 
between what we want to believe and actually what we're experiencing as we work out those daily struggles of life. And what I want to sort of submit to you this morning is that God actually wants to meet you right there in those struggles, those very normal, everyday concerns, because those are about something much, much deeper, which we'll talk about tomorrow. But as we do that, I want to talk about how we're going to set that intention for the week. So I'm going to give you four sort of thoughts that are going to set up our four um, talks over the morning. So the first one, what we're going to do today is talk about living purposefully, What does it mean to actually be fully engaged in the life that God has given me? Tomorrow, we're going to talk about living honestly and how we actually uh, face who we really are and who God really is and how he wants to meet us there. And then on Thursday morning, we're going to talk about loving fully. And then on Friday, losing gracefully. You still have to come to that one. So the first one is living purposefully. So what goes through your mind when you think about a frustration that you're dealing with? What goes through your mind when you think about that thing? Do you find yourself worried or concerned or maybe angry? Although we like to, Christians like to call that frustrated. (laughs) Are you frustrated? Are you angry? There's something in us that's driving us, but we really do want to understand how to interpret life in the way that God has given us. We know what it's like to have everyday struggles, but we also know what it's like to desire something new. And this is another very unique way that we're wired as humans, is that we want new and we want fresh. We have this theme, I am making all things new, and we want to believe that. We're doing new all the time. We're getting a new haircut. We're starting a new fitness plan. We are going on Whole30, and if you're like me, you go on Whole30 for two and a half days, and then you decide that that is a lie from Satan, and it is not true, and that nobody ever should have said that French fries aren't clean. French fries are vegetables, and you stop. But you try, right? I mean, you, you do. You're like, I got a new planner. I have a new pr- productivity software at work. We love new, Christian or not. We're loving that new, and we keep on looking for that thing that we think is going to be that thing that's going to set us up now to make life make sense, to make life bring us peace, to make us feel like we're whole. And we do that whether we're in the church or not. But we serve a God who says, that's a real thing that I gave you, that I am making all things new. It says in Romans 12, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by what? The renewing of your mind. So what we're here to do this week is actually say, God, I'm here to have my mind renewed. I'm here to take the last year or the last lifetime and to open my hands and say, God, what is it that you want me to understand about my life? You see, I can understand religion and theology all day long, but if I cannot interpret my life, my personal life, in a way that brings those things together, then I am not bearing witness to Jesus Christ as my personal Lord and Savior, that he actually wants us to bear witness right in those things. So we're here today to renew our mind. We're here this week to renew our mind, to open ourselves up and to just to sink into the stories of Scripture and to imagine ourselves there. Trained as a counselor, I have to tell you, there is no greater just sort of um, knowledge book of human nature than the Bible. This is the place where we understand who we really are as human beings. 
We never separate ourselves from the stories of Scripture. We actually jump into them and say, when, it, when am I like this person? We're going to hear about David this morning. When am I like David? When am I like Abigail? When am I like Nabal? I can jump into the story because God, the creator of humanity, is the ultimate expert on the human heart. So we can take kind of the life of psychology and all these other things and say, in Scripture, what is it that I am here to understand about me? You see, we are all on this timeline of life, correct? We're all living in day whatever of day whatever, and God knows exactly what that is. We're in a timeline in our life, and the days keep marching on, but we're also in a different kind of time. In the Greek language, the original language of the New Testament has two words for time. The word that we use in English for time is chronos time, like a stopwatch. All of our lives on the day you were born started. That stopwatch began, and you can't go back, and you can't change any of that, and that stopwatch is going to stop. Your earthly life will come to an end. But we also have another kind of time that the Greek word for is kairos, and I believe I have the definition for you guys. This kairos time is a different kind of time. It's a season, an opportune time. It's not just about the moments. It's about these moments that matter. It's critical and decisive points of time in our life. If Kronos is a stopwatch, I think of Kairos as a Polaroid. All of us have these moments in our life. They may have been very ordinary, but you can remember them as if they were a picture. Richard even talked about one. We talked about this, this place being important. We can have these moments in our life where there's this opportunity to seize on to a different kind of time. And although God is very, very present in our Kronos time, he's present in our daily life. I believe that we really experience the spiritual renewal in Kairos time, in these moments of opportunity that come our way. And they don't necessarily look like the kind of moments that the world celebrates. Moments of opportunity might be a, a moment in your kitchen that I remember having myself, and it was a moment of, of real clarity about my need for God and my own sin. I was raising my little kids. They were all little, and I had a five-year-old, three-year-old, one-year-old, and I was standing at the dishwasher, and I was so frustrated with life. I wasn't really great um, at raising young kids. I wanted to be, but it just was hard for me. And I was home, and I had all these ambitions, and I wanted to have this big calling that I feel like God had given me, but yet here I am, and I'm just wiping noses and wiping counters and living in this life. And my husband came home from work, and I remember just slamming the dishwasher and saying out loud, I didn't even see it, say it in my head, I actually said out loud, I didn't get a master's degree to empty the dishwasher. And in a moment like that, right, who's in that moment? Thank you for laughing, I know, because you guys are like, oh gosh, I can't believe we're listening to her. Yes, I am a sinner saved by grace. So, but you've had those, right? It's not a moment, it's not, this, it's not the moment on the stage, it's not your moment in the spotlight. A lot of times our Kairos moments are everyday ordinary moments where maybe only our family's around or no one's there and where we sort of get the veil ripped off about who we really are. And I share a hard one, but of course, there's beautiful moments like that too. These kairos moments where God intercedes and intersects in our life, and we learn about what he is doing in our story. That moment became very important to me because it was a moment where I realized God can call us to something and there can be a long season before it's realized. And that often that is intentional because of the work that he is doing in our character at that time. So Kronos or Kairos, God is present in Kairos time. Look at 2 Corinthians 6, verse 2. 
For he says, in the time of my favor, I heard you, and in the day of salvation, I helped you. I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. I love that author Maya Angelou says, I am still becoming a Christian. She said that near the end of her life. I think in a lot of ways, all of us are constantly becoming a Christian. I'm not talking about your step towards salvation the day you prayed a sinner's prayer. That is done. But what I mean is what we are becoming as Christians as we experience the Kairos opportunity of the now, of this very moment that you're in. All of that frustration, all of that struggle, those worries, those concerns, those places that don't feel like they're changing, how all of that comes together, and God says, what will you do with that? In Deuteronomy 30, let me give you a little context. This is our first point. If you're a note taker under live purposefully, your first point is this. Life is a choice. Life is a choice. So in Deuteronomy 30, Moses, you guys are familiar with the story. Remember, Moses took the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt. He had to lead them through the desert for 40 years, but through a series of circumstances that we're not going to talk about this morning, he is not going to lead them into the promised land. You remember that he passed that to Joshua. The context of this passage is right there in that moment. And I'm going to tell you, for any of y'all who packed up kids and brought them to this camp, if you have experienced the exhaustion of trying to get your children even three hours, can you imagine leading one million Israelites complaining <laughs> on a road trip that lasted 40 years? I mean, often, I know this is not accurate theology, but some of it, I think God was like, Moses, you're tired. You come home now. I'm going to let Joshua take it from here. So we know Moses has done his part. And this context is Moses as his famous last words to the Israelites who are going into the promised land. So anytime we know that we've got those last words, we sort of hang on to those because they're important. And so Moses gives them this reminder of God's faithfulness, of what he's done for them. And remember, the story of the Israelites is our story. Our story as Christians is the story of being freed from the bondage of sin, of being led into the promised land, of being sanctified through that process. So this is our story as well. And Moses looks at those people as they're getting ready to be into the promised land, and he says this, today, I have given you the choice between life and death between blessings and cursing. Now I call on heaven and earth to witness the choice you make. Oh, that you would choose life so that you and your descendants might live. Now listen to this. You can make this choice how? By loving the Lord your God, obeying him, and committing yourself firmly to him. This is the key to your life. Now, what we know here is that Moses is not speaking of physical life because he knows those Israelites are going into the promised land, which means that he must be speaking of a different kind of life. And I think that life that he's speaking of is the same life that he speaks to us, which is the choice we make to live fully in the life that God has given us. That every single morning when we wake up, we have the choice to make as we put our feet on the floor. Will I live this life today in the way that I am interpreting the story of my life? Or will I choose this day to live with God as the one who interprets the story of my life? Because God called us to bear witness to who Jesus is, it means that the number one asset that you have is your life. It is your story, it is your experiences, it is your gifting, 
it is your struggle, it is your suffering, that those are actually the things that God says, this is the asset, this is the gift that you bring to the world that you live in, to the school that you're in, to your workplace, to your home, to your church, to your family. It's not something that you do. It's who you are. And every day that we wake up, we have a choice to make where I can put my feet on the ground and say, God, today I choose to live in your reality. We'll talk about that a little bit more tomorrow about what that looks like. Today is a day that I can choose to do that. And the first thing that we have to do is say, this life is not an accident that I have. These circumstances that I'm in are not an accident. This hardship that I have is not God punishing me. I may be living in consequences of sin, but I serve a redeeming God. So he wants to use those things. That is actually a choice that you have to make. You just, it doesn't happen by osmosis. It doesn't happen by emotion. It doesn't happen by going to church one day a week. It happens every single day that we live our life and say, God, today is a day that I am choosing to live in your reality. I remember being on a student ministry at a camp, much like this, but just with students, and the student speaker said, how about you think of this, and he was talking to middle schoolers, but I was very touched, which shows my emotional maturity at the time, and um, he said, how about this as a prayer, why don't you say, dear God, every morning when you put your feet on the floor, and then why don't you say amen at the end of the day? Think of your life as a conversation that begins at the beginning of the day with God and ends when you close your eyes and say amen. And I think that's what this opportunity is to say, okay, Lord, everything about my life, not just the parts that I want to show people, but the parts that I don't, not just the things that I'm proud of, but the things that I'm not, not just the things, listen up, Christians, not just the things that I've already figured out, but definitely the things that I haven't. Those are the things that I offer to the world. Those are my gift to bring. So we're going to look at a passage in Scripture now. This is our Bible study time. We're going to look at a passage in Scripture where we see this Kairos time at play, and we see these moments of opportunity come to people and what they do with those moments of opportunity. So if you have your Bible, or you can use the Pew Bible if you'd like, or you can use your phone if you want, we're going to be in 1 Samuel 25, and you're going to want to turn to it because it's a longer passage. And I'm going to tell you a story because it's my favorite, favorite thing about the Bible is the opportunity to tell these incredible stories. So 1 Samuel 25, if um, you haven't held paper in a while, I want you to know it's by the book of Ruth. It's in the Old Testament, so you can find it there in your pew Bible. Got it? Okay. A little bit of context. First and second Samuel are about when Israel wants a king and what it looks like when they take on a king over Israel, when they reject God as their king. Their first king is Saul and their second king is David. You're familiar with David. Much of first and second Samuel is about David and we're going to look at a specific moment in David's life and how God works in this moment of opportunity to shape the character of the people involved. So 1 Samuel 25, right at the beginning. First thing it says, verse 1, now Samuel died. Why is it important that we know that Samuel died? Here's what is important to me. Samuel is the one who anointed David as king. When David was young, he anointed him as king. Now, David's life has not gone as I expect David thought that it would. Saul is out to get him. He wants him killed. He's on the run. 
He has been victorious in so many ways, David, as a young warrior serving his king, but his king's insecurity, King Saul's way, his insecurity and his jealousy have made him search out David and want him killed. It is not going well. And now the actual person of authority, the person of spiritual authority in David's life, the person who told David that he would be anointed king is dead. How do you think David's feeling? He's on the run, he's in the wilderness, and the one person who I'm guessing he trusted to have told him the truth about his life is now dead. Enter in. Here we go. Samuel died, and all Israel assembled and mourned for him, and they buried him at his home. We move on, and we learn about a man who was prosperous named Nabal. And what we know about Nabal is that he's this guy, he's got 3,000 sheep, he's got 1,000 goats. His name was Nabal, and his wife's name was Abigail. She was intelligent and beautiful, but her husband was surly and mean in his dealings. He was a Calebite. So uh, God doesn't mince words here. He gives us the straight skinny. I often think, okay, why was Abigail with them? That's why context is so important, because this is a very different age, a very different time in history of the world. Remember that there is not um, structures and systems that allow people who are weaker to prosper, which means that women had to be married. They needed that land, and they needed that security and that safety of a marriage. And so we have no idea why Abigail married Nabal. I doubt she had much choice. I'm sure that it was arranged. But what we do know is that she is intelligent and beautiful, and he is surly and mean, as it says in the NIV. So David's in the wilderness, and he hears that Nabal is shearing sheep. So he sends 10 of his soldiers, 10 of these guys. Here's what you need to know about David. He's on the run. He escapes. And we learn a little bit about the people who are with David just a chapter before in chapter 22. If you flip back in your Bible to 1 Samuel 22 and you look at verse 2, you're going to find out who was actually with David at this time. It says this, all those who were in distress or in debt, or discontented gathered around him, and he became their commander. About 400 men were with him. Wow. <laughs> I bet he's really feeling like that kingship is right around the corner. You know, I'm like, okay, so everyone who is unhappy in life is now around David. If you've ever led a small group, now, if the person is here, don't look at them, but if you've ever led a small group where you had that one very special person, that was a little bit harder to lead. I want you to just multiply that by 400 and imagine that's the people that you now have with you. And this is how David's life is playing out right now. He's on the run, he's living in caves, King Saul is out to kill him, and the only people that he has to lead are the unhappy ones. And that's who he has with him. And so here we pick up the story. That's the guys that are around him. And he sends 10 of these guys down to Nabal and he says, go up to Nabal at Carmel and greet him in my name. And say to him, long life to you, good health to you and your household. So bring him a message of peace and good health to all that is yours. Now I hear, now this is David giving direction. Now I hear that it's sheep shearing time. When your shepherds were with us, we did not mistreat them. And the whole time they were at Carmel, nothing of them was missing. Ask your own servants and they will tell you. Therefore, be favorable toward my men since we come at a festive time. Please give your servants and your son David whatever you can find for them. Now, this may seem a little bit forward 
that David would send some men to ask for some provisions from Nabal. But remember, this is like wild, wild west of the Middle East. There's no police, there's no security. And so these guys, these in-debt, discontented, distressed men who are David's followers, have protected these people as they have been shearing sheep. This is a time where bandits and robbers would come and take what they wanted because this is a time where the world just operated on the premise of, of, of just um, people who can take what they want. It was a time of, um, I can't think of the word that I'm looking for. What's the word that starts with C? Conquest, there it is, thanks. Jet lag, okay. So it was a time of conquest, and so people just took what they want if they had power. So the fact that David's men who were in power, who could have taken what they wanted, didn't take what they wanted, and actually provided some safety and security for those of Nabal's household at this time of sheep shearing, David's just like, hey, we did you a favor, can you do us a favor? Notice that David doesn't ask for anything specific. He says, hey, is there anything that you have that you could give to us? So it's a sort of generous offer, and I think he's like, hey, my men are hungry. And by the way, they're also difficult, and I'd love for us to have something to look forward to. So when David's men arrived, they gave Nabal this message in David's name, and then they waited. And this is what Nabal answered. Who is this David? Who is this son of Jesse? Many servants are breaking away from their masters these days. P.S. Everybody knows who David is. This is David, the Goliath slayer. This is David of whom people sang songs. Saul has slain his thousands. David has slain his tens of thousands. Nabal knows who David is. Who is this David? Many servants are breaking away from their masters these days. Why should I take my bread and my water and the meat I have slaughtered for my shearers, do you hear anything there? And give it to men coming from who knows where. So David's men turned around and went back, and they arrived, and they reported every word. And David said to his men, each of you strap on your sword. So they did, and David strapped on his as well. Now listen to this. About 400 men went up with David, while 200 stayed with the supplies. So now all the in-debt, discontented, distressed men also found some friends, and now there's 600 of them. And now David says to the 400, let's go slaughter everyone. Now I'm thinking, this is David. This is a man after God's own heart. What in the world? David, it seems like a little bit of overkill, if you excuse the literal expression. So I I really am like, what is going on? And so one of the servants told Abigail, Nabal's wife, hey, David sent messengers from the wilderness to give our master his greetings, and he hurled insults at them. But these men actually were really good to us. They didn't mistreat us. They took care of us when we were in the fields. They were a wall around us, and they protected us. Verse 17, Kairos moment. Now think it over and see what you can do, because disaster is hanging over our master and his whole household. He is such a wicked man that no one can talk to him. So Abigail acted quickly. She took 200 loaves of bread. I mean, what? what kind of pantry is this woman running? She just had 200 loaves of bread available. It's a rich, it's a huge household. 200 loaves of bread, two skins of wine, five dressed sheep, five stays of roasted grain, 100 cakes of raisins. I especially love the cakes of raisins and the 200 cakes of pressed figs because that's that's like the road trip snacks. Like those will last longer. Like she's like, hey guys, here's some stuff for now Here's some stuff for later, like a, like a good mom would. And she brings all of that with her. And she says herself, I am going to follow you out there. And she did not tell Nabal what she was to do. And she came riding her donkey. And listen to this. She came into a mountain ravine. 
And there were David and his men descending toward her, and she met them. Now, in a place of conquest and power, one of the worst places to be in warfare is at the bottom of a ravine. You're basically a lame duck. You're just a sitting duck. And Abigail opens herself up. She sends all of these provisions in front of her, and she's just there to meet them. David said to her, it's been useless. Now listen to this, because what we hear here is an interpretation of these events. It's been useless, all my watching over this fellow's property in this wilderness, so that nothing of his was missing. He has paid me back evil for good. May God deal with David, be it ever so severely, if by morning I leave one male of all who belong to him. And so when Abigail saw David, she quickly got off her donkey and bowed down before David with her face to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, pardon your your servant, my Lord, and let me speak to you. Hear what your servant has to say. Pay no attention to that wicked man, Nabal. He is just like his name. His name means fool, and folly goes with him. Here's what's interesting. What do you get when you answer a fool with foolishness? You get two fools. There's two fools in the story right now. We have David who is, is vowing that he is going to slaughter all of these people because of this offense that he's experienced. So what is going on with David? We're, we're in a story and there's an interpretation. There's facts that are happening. There's one story. But we have three very different ways that that story is being interpreted. And Abigail is the one who begins to interpret the story in a very different way. If you feel like all the biblical women are quiet, I just want you to to know that while she's still down here, she's about to lay down some serious truth. She's like, okay, his name is Fool and Folly goes with him. As for me, your servant, I did not see the men my Lord sent. And now, my Lord, as surely as the Lord your God lives and you live, Since the Lord has kept you from bloodshed and from avenging yourself with your own hands, may your enemies and all who are intent on harming my Lord be like Nabal, and let this gift, which your servant has brought to my Lord, be given to the men who follow you. And then she was like, hold on, I'm not done. Please forgive, (laughs) she goes on, forgive your servant's presumption. And then she begins to tell David who he really is. She begins to tell David who she knows him to be. She has never met him before. And she says, the Lord your God will make a lasting dynasty for my Lord because you fight the Lord's battles and no wrongdoing will be found in you as long as you live. Even though someone is pursuing you to take your life, the life of my Lord will be bound securely in the bundle of the living by the Lord your God. But the lives of your enemies he will hurl away as from the pocket of a sling. This is beautifully poetic. She's like, hey, David, I know who you are. I know about Goliath. Let me just give you a little word picture that reminds you of your sling and of your God who avenges your enemies before you make a fool of yourself. When the Lord has fulfilled for my Lord every good thing he promised concerning him and has appointed him ruler over Israel, listen to this, verse 31, my Lord will not have on his conscience the staggering burden of needless bloodshed or of having avenged himself. And when the Lord your God has brought my Lord success, remember your servant. Here is the Kairos moment that Abigail grasps. But not just her. Because listen to what happens next. David says to Abigail, praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, who has sent you today to meet me. May you be blessed for your good judgment and for keeping me from bloodshed on this day and from avenging myself with my own hands. So David takes the gifts that she gives And he says, go home in peace. I've heard your words and I've granted your requests. And Abigail goes home. 
Abigail gets home and she meets her fool husband, Nabal, who is drunk. He's been uh, enjoying the festival. He has no idea what's happened. And in the morning, now this is a real word to the women here. Notice that she does not confront Nabal while he's drunk or that night. I mean, can you imagine coming home and being like, hey, fool, I just saved our whole household, all of it. But no, she's like, this is not the time. And she holds her tongue. Now, she might have been like, I just want to make sure you really understand what I'm saying to you. Because <laughs> it says the next morning when he was sober, she went to him and says, do you know what just happened? She told him all these things and his heart failed him. And 10 days later, the Lord struck Nabal and he died. When David heard that Nabal was dead, he went back and got Abigail and took him as his wife. But before you think that that's a Cinderella story, that wasn't wife number one. So, and as we know from the Old Testament, multiple wives never works out. So it's not all beautiful. And God doesn't always kill people the way he does in this story. But I think Nabal was overcome by his folly. And we see that God sovereignly acts in this story. But here's the interesting thing. Let's look at this story from three different perspectives. We have one set of facts. We know one thing happens, right? David's men protect Nabal's household, they come and ask for a favor, they are turned down, David responds wanting to kill everybody, and Abigail intervenes. But everyone's story of what brought them to that moment is different. All the facts are the same, the interpretation is different. The memories are the same, the interpretation is different. Firstly, we have Nabal. Think about Nabal. Nabal is possessive, Nabal is closed in. When I read to you about what Nabal did, I pointed out how self-centered his idea of how the world works was. When I think of Nabal, for some reason, I think of Jabba the Hutt. That's just what comes to mind. I'm like, he's slimy and selfish and, you know, and cocky. And he's this guy who's like, why should I help anybody? Why should I take my stuff? Why should I do anything with my possessions? Guess what? We all have a little Nabal in us. We all have a little self-righteousness in us about what's ours. And we see in this story how that turns so poorly on Nabal when he is so set and intent on making sure that he keeps his own things. Now, what about David? What about David? Well, I feel like David was out looking for a fight. I mean, it didn't take long to say, strap on your swords, let's kill some people. Now, why do you think brought David to that moment? I already pointed out Samuel. His one sort of connection to his future to his legacy has died. We know that he, he's just had the opportunity to kill King Saul, and he doesn't. Right before this story is the story of when King Saul's in a cave and he cuts off the corner of his robe and holds it up and is like, hey, king, do you remember me? Why are you, why are you trying to kill me? See, David is a guy who's trying to do the right thing. He, he really is. But I think that he is overwhelmed by his grief for Samuel, by this huge gap between what he believes his life is meant to be about and what he's actually experiencing, by the stress of the everyday struggles that I'm sure come when you're trying to lead 600 discontented men who are hungry, all of that leads him to an impulsive action where he is about to go outside of God's will and act anyway. And we see in David this flexibility to be a broken human being who wants to take matters into his own hand, but is willing to receive when a Kairos moment comes and brings that correction. And then we see Abigail. 
And the way that Abigail enters into this story, did you catch that David and his men said, we, if we, may God deal with us if we leave one male alive? The plan would be to kill all the men and to take the women and children and the household possessions and, and take them on as part of now their like little roving kingdom. So Abigail was actually in a position to get rid of that fool husband. And she does not take it. In fact, she humbles. She actually physically humbles herself. She kneels, but she also humbles herself in the way that she enters in. You see, I think Abigail's Kairos moment came when she dealt with earthly matters with the business of heaven in mind. The business of heaven is what Abigail was about. And she says it in many words. She uses God's sovereignty seven times in her sermonette to David. She reminds him seven times, not only of who God is, but of who he is because of God. She enters in, the person with the least amount of positional authority in this story has the most spiritual influence. If you have ever doubted that God can use you, because you are too young, because you are too old, because you didn't get that degree, because you don't have that position. That is not what God's reality tells us. God's reality actually seems to prefer those that the world disregards. You know, what's interesting about looking in this room is that we're all pretty just ordinary looking people. And I think that if we engage with just life, kids, jobs, it would seem ordinary to think that God calls us to be like superheroes of spiritual life in very ordinary lives like he did Abigail. To think that the God of the universe thinks of your life as that important to engage in this way. What does Abigail do in this story? She calls David to something greater. Remember she says, you are the Lord's anointed. Do you want this kind of bloodshed on your hands? She humbles herself. She doesn't self-protect. Abigail doesn't protect herself in this situation, although she had every right to do so and probably would have been easy to do. And she shows self-restraint. When she comes home, she doesn't go right to Nabal. She says, I'm going to hold on to this. We can talk about this later. You see, something in her character led her to be a woman who could embrace a Kairos moment like this. And that character wasn't built for just that one moment. That character was built, I'm assuming, by a lifetime that led her to that place. We know that her servants respected her so much that they came to her and said, you got to do something. So this woman, in a historical time where women were disregarded and considered property, traded hands like property, this woman changes the course of King David's life. First point that we can learn, what are the implications of all of this and this whole concept of how we might live purposefully? The first is this, that attitude, our attitude always leads to action. George Boardman, he was a missionary serving in Burma, and I love what he says about this. He says, let us not say, every man is the architect of his own fortune, but let us say, every man is the architect of his own character. You see, when life is a choice, when we put our feet on the ground, the choice is not that the circumstances will change, it's that our character within them can change. That actually the very clear miracle that God wants to do in your life usually starts 
on the inside and moves out. It is a miracle to forgive somebody that you have every right to not want to forgive. It is a miracle to allow God to heal you from a hurt that you have every right to hold on to because it was actually really hurtful. You see, what God calls us to in the Christian life is the miracle of being changed from the inside out. We are not the architect of our circumstances, but we are the architect of our character, the way that we enter in. And the way that Abigail entered into this moment of opportunity reveals this kind of humility that I believe is the mark of a God-centered life. The kind of humility that comes when we have this controlled strength that believes in the sovereignty of God. Humility to me is not weakness. It's not self-deprecating doormatness, which I've seen quite a bit of. It's actually controlled strength, believing it is God who works on my behalf, that I am not the one who has to control these circumstances, that I can enter in with controlled strength, believing in God's sovereignty just as Abigail did. Listen to Psalm 7, written by David. Now that you know this moment, or maybe you know it in a new way, now that you know this moment in David's life where he almost made a a huge mistake of bloodshed and avenging himself, Listen to what he wrote in Psalm 7. Whoever is pregnant with evil conceives trouble and gives birth to disillusionment. Listen to that. Whoever is pregnant with evil. David actually puts disillusionment together with evil. Do you know that I think the greatest challenge for young people today is the challenge of disillusionment? That it's just the veil has come off and nothing is made new, nothing is good. Nothing can be redeemed. Evil leads to disillusionment. And the challenge for you as a person who has lived a little bit of life, who has lived through losses and struggle, who probably has confusing parts in your life that you can't make meaning of, the challenge for you is will you allow disillusionment to creep into your faith? Will you allow the idea that you better just settle for what you have? This is as good as it's going to get. The idea that you give up hope and settle for mediocrity is evil. It is. God desires and cares for you so deeply that he wants you to know his hope. And we can hope all day long for other people. Christians are so good at this. We can hope all day long for other people while holding on to this this little seed of disillusionment that begins to grow in our soul. And I think that David's kairos moment came when Abigail's words showed him that he had become disillusioned, that he had given up on what God had said to him, even for a moment, because he has a sterling record leading up to that time. He does not kill Saul. He does not take these opportunities. He leads his men well. But our life is full of character-shaping moments where God says, I'm going to root out that stuff from you. Whoever digs a hole and scoops it out falls into the pit they've made. The trouble they cause recoils on them and their violence comes down on their own heads. You say, David learns that you reap what you sow. Despite failings and humanity, he let his life, his whole life, be moments of opportunity to know and follow God more deeply. Our second point, it's really our third. Life is a choice. Attitudes lead to action. Our character is formed one Kairos moment at a time. Our character is formed one of these moments at a time. The moment, that snapshot that you have in your life. The story I told you about the dishwasher was a Kairos moment. 
It was a moment of who am I, who do I want to be? I was preaching recently actually out here in California, and um, I was at Menlo Church, if any of you are familiar with Menlo, and I thought it was really funny that John Ortberg decided that I should be the person who talked on sex to his people. I'm like, me? I'm their guest, but okay. So I did a talk on on sex and singleness, and um, I had a woman come up to me who was in her 90s afterward, and she said, you know, my husband died about 12 years ago, and I'm learning how to be single. I'm lonely, and I miss him. And she said, but you know what? I was single for most of my 30s. And I said, really, do you think that that time in your 30s has helped you with your time now in your 90s? She said, absolutely. And she told me about a Kairos moment in her own life. She said she remembered waking up one day and realizing, I can be an interesting single person or I can be a bitter single person. And those are my only two choices. And she said, on that day, I decided I was going to be an interesting single person. And she told me about a life where she traveled the world and she eventually did meet and marry her husband of 50 years. But because of that Kairos moment in her 30s, she was living out her Kairos and Kronos reality in her 90s in a very different way. And in those everyday struggles, right there is where God invites us in. And one of the ways that we, that we find out what God is teaching us is we actually become curious about those struggles in our life rather than being condemning. There is a huge difference when you're having a conversation in your heart and your mind with God, when you are curious about your limitations and your sin and your failing, or you are condemning. When you're curious about it, you're saying to God, what's going on in me? What engine is underneath this? When I think about my dishwasher moment, the engine underneath that was first of all pride, second of all insecurity. Pride said, I'm better than this. And when I realized that, I was able to confess and ask God to heal me from that. Insecurity says, God, I don't know if you're ever going to come through for me. I don't know if I'm worth it. I don't know if you value me. You see, condemnation shuts down the kind of conversation that brings us to healing in the spirit. But when we're curious, when we ask ourselves, why does that thing bother me so much? Why am I really fearful there? Why do I act so controlling in that one relationship? When we're curious about what God is doing, we begin to have our character shaped in new and different ways. And finally, Abigail understood earthly matters because she understood the business of heaven. What Abigail represents is wisdom. She was able to discern between moments and relationships and choose the wise course. And what Abigail did more than anything else was she let God tell the story through it all for herself. She laid down her own rights, her own self, and let God shape the story from beginning to end. She acted in the power that she had, and she let God act in the power that he had. And we learn this story that every single moment was important just the way it played out. 2 Timothy 1.7 says, For the spirit God gave us does not make us timid, but gives us power, love, and self-discipline. Abigail was not timid at all. Abigail was shrewd and strong and powerful, but she was also directed by God. The Greek word used here for self-control is the same word that we use for our diaphragm, the center of our breathing. The idea of self-control here is that God is the center of our breathing. Our very life is directed by the way God tells stories, not by the way that we do. So as we close this morning, this is sort of an opening thought for the rest of our time here, which is what does it look like for you in the moments that are defining you right now? 
What does it look like in what God might be teaching you about yourself? And here's just a little, um, a little sort of diagram that might help you kind of place yourself on a spectrum. So here's three questions that you can ask yourself. Think of these as a spectrum that you can mark your own heart on. Over the last year, like the story of the woman that I told you who is single, have I found that the fruit of my life is more bitter and resentful or yielded and receptive toward God? And it's, you're not less of a Christian if you realize that over the past year you've become more resentful. You're just a human, and God wants to meet us there. The second one is this. Am I finding myself writing my own story or believing in God's story? And you can hold on to that one. If you're not sure what that means, you'll learn tomorrow. If you're not quite sure. To me, writing my own story means that I'm the person who interprets all the events of my life. I'm the person who decides what all those things mean. I find myself in my operating system just continuing to believe what I believe based on what I can see, and I'm not consulting God for what he might be doing in the midst of it. I'm living here in my Kronos timeline, and I'm not engaging here in Kairos life. And the third one is this, and this to me is the fruit of the first two. Am I anxious in my situation or trusting in my situation? So that's between you and yourself if you want to discuss with your spouse or your family. But this is just a way to kind of start the conversation over this week about what it looks like to engage with this wholehearted life that God has promised us. Revelation 21, behold, I am making all things new. Just put your name in that verse. And Jesus is looking at you and saying, I am making you new. Let's pray. Father in heaven, it's an incredible truth to know that you've given us this powerful thing that is our life, our story, the way you've engaged with us, your faithfulness to us, what you've done in the past and what you'll do in the future, that God, that is the asset that we each have. And Lord, I think sometimes you're just, you're looking at your sons and daughters and you're like, I take your life so much more seriously than you take your life. Lord, would you help us to be people who engage deeply with you, who are curious about what you're doing and how you're acting in our lives? Would you help us to be people who are more and more becoming like you in humility and controlled strength and trust in the security of knowing that you are a good father and that we are loved by you? In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you. Thank you.